It's almost like we do this from like our bedrooms. It's almost like I can't fucking sit still. Hello, welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we cash in on capitalism, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host, the blister pack badass herself, Jessica Frazier. Ooh, I'm a bust out. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm pretty good. How are you? You know, I'm fine. It's slow at work because it's the week between Christmas and New Year. So. Mm. That means you can read more comics. It does, and I have a lot of comics to read. I got so many yes. comic books for Christmas. Oh my gosh, you need to read them all. All of them. Like we, <laughs> Sarah actually tracked down a bunch that we're going to be talking about at some point. <laughs> like, That's oh man. Yeah, I'm particularly enjoying the Justice League comic. It was created as a promo for Craftsman Tools. I don't... Yeah, whatever. What? We'll we'll discuss it at some point. Yes. There's also the X-Men at the Texas State Fair. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Comic books are weird and we love them. <laughs> well, on that note, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We always like to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. And as always, if you are enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's a huge help if you can rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, because that really does help with discoverability. So before we get to the main topic tonight, which is Superpowers, the comic book that DC produced in the mid-80s to promote their eponymous toy line, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? Well, I've talked before on this show about how much I'm digging the Radiant series, you know, like Radiant Black, Radiant Red. Yeah. And my friends, they have another comic in the lineup. It's Radiant Pink. <laughs> and I saw issue one on the shelves at my local comic shop and got both the regular and the alternative covers because I really couldn't decide. Am I, am I, am I becoming that person, Mike? Am I? <laughs> I was going to say, you're, are you becoming me? Maybe. I know. I got a little worried when I couldn't decide. And I was like, well, they just go, both go in the pile and like my life flashed before my eyes. So that was <laughs> exciting, I guess. Nice. So <laughs> it was such a fun issue. The art style, as always, it's super fun. The colors really pop. And she already likes pink, so very fitting. The movement drawn into the panels, especially when she's being super or in explosive situations, is really dynamic. And I also love Radiant Pink because she's a badass streamer and she's queer. I was going to ask if there was anything queer themed yes. with this comic. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. Love it. We love a queer. We love a queer on this show. So her super ability which was set up in prior Radiant issues, so I'm not spoiling anything, is that she can basically tear holes in reality and jump through to teleport to different places. Mm. But the trick is, is that her power is limited. She can only jump so many times before having to recharge for a bit, which that can take a nasty turn if she's ended up somewhere she shouldn't be. So seriously, if you liked any of the Radiant series, check out Radiant Pink, and I seriously can't wait for the next issue to come out. And you know I'll be buying the trade when it eventually drops. Just saying. <laughs> well, that was me. What about you, my friend? I also picked up something that's relatively recent, but it's a couple of years old. It's the trade for 2018's Milk Wars, which is a crossover between DC and Young Animal, which was this pop-up imprint that DC set up with the Umbrella Academy writer and lead vocalist of My Chemical Romance, Gerard Way. The Young Animal books were, they were kind of like a vertigo in that they were these sort of experimental, mature takes on classic characters, as well as a couple of new, interesting new ones. And 
the gist of this crossover is that there is this villainous multiversal organization called Retcon with two ends. So it's it's kind of like uh, Roxxon, I guess, from Marvel, I think. But their whole thing is that they hijack and rewrite realities for the sake of producing entertainment. I was hoping you were going to say that they were actually yeah. retconning. I was going to be really mad if it wasn't that. So I'm very pleased. Yeah. And the whole entertainment angle, it's kind of like Mojo from the X-Men. But they basically rewrite the characters of a bunch of mainstream DC Universe heroes. And I'm only a little way into it, but the story opens up with the Doom Patrol arriving in Happy Harbor, Rhode Island, and finding that everything has been changed into this weird 1950s suburb where the DC characters are all sort of strange versions of themselves serving retcons interests. So like Superman is now Milkman Man. Uh, and he's like delivering this milk that seems to be like a brainwashing agent to some residents. And then he's also murdering some people in the name of corporate interests. The Justice League is now the Community League of Rhode Island. And Batman just showed up <laughs> as this weird priestly version of himself known as Father Bruce. It is very strange and very funny. But yeah, it's like it's honestly it's one of the weirdest things I've read in a long time. But it's the good kind of weird. Narratively, it reminds me a lot of Grant Morrison when he's allowed to turn things up to 11. But if you ever read the umbrella Academy, like this whole thing absolutely feels like something that would have come out of the, you know, out of the mind that spawned that comic. And it's pretty solid. Nice. That sounds awesome. Um, yeah. I'll loan you the trade when I'm done with it. Rad. Thank you so much. <laughs> of course. All right, so are you ready to talk about DC superpowers? Pew, pew, pew. Those are my superpowers. I just, there, nothing <laughs> happens. Just You just hear pew, 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 and it's just my mouth making the noises. So It's, it's not you busting out your 1920s radio announcer voice? <laughs> well, now, you've spoiled all the fun, haven't you? That's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> Okay, so before we get onto the main topic of this episode, as always, there's a little side tangent into the past. What do you know about comic book action figures? Well, not a whole lot. My initial impression is that they probably got going in the 80s during the toy boom and were likely created to go along with the TV programs like we've talked about in the past. I don't think I'm spoiling mm. anything. <laughs> about that no but you know be honestly beyond that i don't know anything and even that is just absolutely my guess and i'm probably wrong okay yeah you're i mean you're not far off comic book action figures like so they've been around for a while in various forms but the form that we really kind of you know recognize today it came about in the 70s Thanks to a company called Mego. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but I wouldn't be surprised if you hadn't. I hadn't heard of them before I this. I have not. No. <laughs> yeah. So Mego was a toy company responsible for comic book action figures as we know them. In 1972, they secured the licenses to create toys for both National Periodical Publications, which is DC Comics and Marvel Comics. So they were actually producing toy lines for both companies at the same line. So they created these eight-inch dolls that were called the world's greatest superheroes. And they had these full outfits that were like that were made out of cloth that you could swap out, you know, kind of similar to Barbie or any other standard doll. But you know, clearly these were made for boys. And basically in 1971, the company had shifted direction and they had started producing licensed dolls. And then they were also doing things like celebrity dolls and they created the Micronauts toy line. And then in 75, they started creating a smaller plastic line of action toys that they called comic action toys. And they had the costumes molded onto the figure. And that technique was actually later adopted for the Star Wars and Superpowers lines by Kenner. But basically, this was a huge cost saving measure. So they didn't have to, like, you know, create custom outfits for these dolls when they were selling them. And the line for comic action heroes featured Batman, Robin, the Joker, Penguin, and a ton of other DC Comics characters. And then in 1979, Mego re released the line under a new name, Pocket Superheroes. But then in 1982, Mego wound up filing for bankruptcy. And so 
1983, they went away. And these days, their dolls, their action figures, the play sets are actually like really highly sought after collectibles. I was looking them up and they're ridiculously expensive. It's like hundreds of dollars for these figures. And that's kind of like the starting price. But after this point, Marvel and DC stopped using the same company to put out toys based on their IP. And instead, they started using competing manufacturers. And given the bankruptcy, it probably wasn't surprising that DC decided to go to another manufacturer. So they awarded their toy license to Kenner in 1984. And Kenner at this point was like living their best life because they had had this runaway success with their Star Wars action figures starting in the 70s. And, you know, they were kind of ramping down at this point after the Return of the Jedi had come out and wrapped up the trilogy. And so they were eager to go out like all in on a brand that would hopefully have the same success. And at the same time, Marvel went to Mattel to produce their Secret Wars toys, and those weren't nearly as popular. Reportedly, this is because the quality suffered due to Mattel understandably prioritizing their Masters of the Universe toys, which were, mm. you know, like crazy huge. <laughs> so they already had yeah, one smash yeah. it on their hands. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, we should probably talk about this just a little bit because we've talked about this in past episodes. But do you remember what the 1980s were like? in terms of children's entertainment and toys. Oh, God. Oh, the 80s. That lovely time when Reagan fucked everything up for generations to come. Yep. It was also the time when Reagan's appointed chair to the FCC, Mark Fowler, fouled shit up in the world of television <laughs> and loosened up the regulations on children's programming, essentially allowing them to become half-hour-long toy advertisements and mm -hmm. that was the vibe for saturday morning cartoons in the 80s and 90s and let's be real we still very much aubrey in this way with media for children so again thanks reagan <laughs> yeah down with capitalism what our Who show is eventually that? just going to become like hour-long episodes of that that tiktok where it's like tracing everything back to reagan <laughs> <laughs> You just show us and we've got yarn. <laughs> like, oh, God. No, but here's the connection. Let me show you. <laughs> we're we're going to become real life versions of uh, that meme of Charlie Day from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia with like the conspiracy board. <laughs> <laughs> it all goes back to the Gipper. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Kenner got the contract for the new DC action figures and Kenner's big emphasis for these characters was action and art. So each toy that they put out had kind of different hidden mechanisms within the figures that would trigger when you like, you know, squeeze their arms or legs. And also this emphasis on each figures, you know, in quotes, superpower wound up causing them to name the entire toy line, the superpowers collection. I think Superman himself had like, a punch red tornado if i remember right spun his torso i remember having a dark side action figure and he i think he also had like you know like some sort of motion with his arms or something but the one thing i do remember is there was like a little strip of a prism built into the top of his head so that if you shined a light down on him his eyes would glow red yeah <laughs> and these days though, the thing that the toys are really remembered for is that each figure in those first two waves or, you know, a series were packaged with a mini comic featuring an adventure that spotlighted the character that it was attached with. And the thing is that Darkseid and other characters from Apocalypse were basically decided to be the true villains of the storyline. And because of this, Wikipedia claims that Jack Kirby received some of the only royalties of his career when he redesigned the characters for Kenner. And likewise, George Perez received some royalties for his design of Cyborg from the Teen Titans mm. and his redesign of Lex Luthor. We have to take all that with a grain of salt, though, since I couldn't find a source cited. And that said, most of the other designs and also almost all of the package artwork were based on Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's classic DC style guides, which are also extremely sought after collectible items because they were never released to the public. Oh, 
Yeah, they're really cool. Like, we should probably do an episode about those at some point. They're a yeah. really interesting part of, like, comic history. You had me at style, my guy. <laughs> yeah. All right, so one thing we do need to note is that they only had one female figure in the entire line, and that was Wonder Woman. And they kind of hit her. Like, she didn't appear in any ads for the toys, and I remember she was, like, really hard to find, too. Well, yeah, because fuck women. Yeah. <laughs> like, who wants right. them? Who wants to see them? So, like, you know, to, to the surprise of nobody, like, I was a kid in the 80s, and so I was, like, the prime demographic for this. And I loved the DC Superpowers characters. And one of my mom's favorite stories is how I really wanted a Wonder Woman figure, which, again, shouldn't surprise anybody. I wanted to play with the girl. And none of the stores in San Francisco had her figure. And my mom had just retired as a flight attendant. And so she like called a bunch of her friends who were still regularly flying to other cities and they were on the lookout for her. What? And that is how she eventually ended up with two action figures of Wonder Woman. And she was able to replace my first one after a kid stole it from me on the playground. (laughs) So I know. Right. But yeah. So anyway, stick a pin in this. We're going to come back to it later on. Oh, I'm very excited. All right, so I have a treat for you. I have one of the original commercials for the DC Superpowers figures, and I want you to watch this. Absolutely. Coming from the farthest reaches of the universe to challenge the worst villains on Earth are the most powerful heroes ever in the battle of the Superpowers collection. What's this? The dam's about to blow and take Robin with it? Who'll stop the Joker and Luther? Kenner's new Superpowers collection figures with power action each sold separately with its own mini comics. Who can help now? A power ring, a power action punch. Can this madness be stopped in time? You decide. Yeah, so anyway. Oh my god. For everyone, since you could not see (laughs) what I could see, just know (laughs) that the commercial comprised of legitimate children playing with the toys. And maybe not even children. It actually may have been adults because those hands were rather large. And so (laughs) maybe they were kids. I don't know. The point is, is that they're playing with the toys and then legitimately there's just like a kitchen timer and that's the ticking you're hearing in the background. It's a kitchen timer was, that they keep zooming into. It's the funniest shit. Yeah, it's supposed to be the timer with a bomb. It's very cute. It's <laughs> it's before that point in the 80s where they started having the commercials with like the full on wild, like produced sets. Like this is, you know, very clearly like someone is playing on the edge of a bathtub or something like that that's been done up a little bit. Or maybe but I think it's maybe charming. like a swimming pool with a natural walk wall. It's yeah, it's cute. Yeah. I think it's realistic to what you would do as a child. Like this is how I would play with this toy if I were a kid. You know, it's like I would run around my backyard with this toy and like pretend like I'm blowing yeah. shit up and use my mom's kitchen timer. And it it was really cute. Yeah, it was, I don't know, there's something just very wholesome and innocent about it. And I like, mm-hmm. I like how it's actually, it feels very no frills, which is great. Now, once the toy line hit shelves, DC started marketing the brand really hard. Basically, they wanted to make the Super Friends name and logo appear everywhere they could. And I mean, for a couple of years, it was everywhere. Like, I was sitting there and talking to Sarah about this. So I was, again, like, you know the target audience for this. And so I remember seeing it everywhere, but you know, I was five, like, you know, like I may just be misremembering it. No, it was actually everywhere. (laughs) Like for a couple of years, like the sheer volume of tie-in products that I found when I was researching this is just overwhelming. There were books, there were puffy stickers, there were lunch boxes, clothes, party supplies, duffel bags, art sets, and Play-Doh kits. Just to name a few. For the record, I love a motherfucking puffy sticker, okay? Oh, yeah. Do they still make them anymore? Like, I don't see them anymore. Probably not. I don't know. They probably yeah, are killing the planet, say. honestly. We don't need them, but I just, I used to love them. I mean, if we can get Sticker Mule to make some, we'll make some of the piles. That would be amazing, <laughs> actually. Oh, my God. How cute. With his stupid right. puffy. Yes. Yes. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, we'll look into that. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, this isn't even, like, just a few of the products that they made. It's, like, a fraction 
of a few of the products. But the upside of this is that superpower stuff is pretty easy to find in flea markets and thrift shops. Like I originally found a bunch of issues of the series that we're going to talk about at an antique store in Petaluma. Also, like every time I'm at the flea market, I see people hawking superpowers, action figures and play sets. You'll see them with or without the original packaging. They're not exactly cheap, but they're relatively easy to find. Now, likewise, Hanna-Barbera revived their Super Friends cartoon brand that had been in hiatus for a couple of years, and they put out two new series called Super Friends, The Legendary Superpower Show, and The Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians. And also at this time, Warner Home Video packaged episodes of the old Superman, Batman, Superboy, and Aquaman animated series that Film Nation produced for them back in the 60s on VHS and Betamax, and they released them under the Superpowers label. So like, as I said, the Superpowers logo and name was just flooding the market. It was like everywhere you looked for kids' entertainment. And like I said earlier, the thing that the toys are arguably most remembered for is the fact that they all came with these mini-comics that introduced the characters and then provided an adventure for kids to enjoy. But that's not actually the series that we're going to talk about. Instead, we're going to talk about the tie-in comics that DC released. And they put out a grand total of three different miniseries, one for each year that the toy line was in existence. And it was kind of like tying into each wave of action figures release. So that leads us to the books that we're here to talk about. The first Superpowers comic is a five-issue miniseries that ran from July to November 1984. It was plotted by Jack Kirby, written by Joey Cavalieri, penciled by Adrian Gonzalez, inked by Paolo Marcos, colored by Carl Gifford, lettered by Ben Oda, edited by Dick Giordano and Andrew Helfer, and it featured cover art by Jack Kirby as well. And then also, Kirby is credited as the writer and artist in the final issue. So according to DC Fandom, the series was designed to serve as an intro to the characters who received the action figure treatment. Essentially, this was created to onboard people who were fans of the toys but hadn't read the comics before, which got some thoughts about. But additionally, these Superpowers comics were intended to be like continuity-free, and so they're not part of the mainstream DC canon. Instead, it's actually been labeled as Earth-32, according to DC's multiverse. So maybe we should have actually had Dear Watchers on for this episode since it's, I guess, kind of an imaginary story. <laughs> I was thinking about that. And as I was reading it, I didn't have the context of knowing that it was out of canon. And I was like, this is some wild shit that all of these yeah. people Sorry. are going through. No, that's Sorry, okay. Sorry, Robin Guido. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, man, we'll have you on next time. We promise we love you. It's great. <laughs> Now, how would you summarize the first volume of DC's Superpowers comic? In the classic Jessica terms, buckle up, bitches. You guys, this was wild. <laughs> <laughs> we normally don't talk a lot about what we're reading ahead of time, but even I was like, whoa. And I messaged Jessica and was like, this shit is wild, man. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I messaged back, I think, in all caps, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I believe you did. <laughs> Tracks. Yeah, it was. And again, that was kind of in the period before I knew that it was out of canon. Yeah. You all will understand why that's really funny after I've described this. And I took some time to like go through all of this because here's the thing. If I didn't explain all of this... There would be no understanding this comic. No. There would be none. So I'm sorry ahead of time. Like, I mean, these are these are just facts. They're, like, she's not being hyperbolic. This is... <laughs> there is just no exaggeration with how wild the series is. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. So the comic starts off with a mysterious figure. We only see his hand. It's this blue-gloved hand. Who could it be? He's found four warriors who defeated all of the rest of the warriors in some sort of death duel somewhere. The figure gives to them part of his own power. We don't know what that is, but he does. And names them the Emissaries of Doom with the ultimate goal of taking down the superheroes and 
domineering Earth. <laughs> Cue twirling mustache right here. But we can't see it. We can't see it because we don't see his face yet. So the emissaries decide that the best bet is to gather all of the supervillains of the world to help them with the cause, effectively pulling them each non-consensually into pocket dimensions to discuss joining forces. Mm -hmm. So he first comes across Lex Luthor, who is, I would say, rightfully upset that Superman came to his peaceful planet and then fucked his shit up, blew up his family and entire planet. And gets him on board, but makes him jump through a bunch of hoops to test him to see if he's even, like, worthy to join. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's I'm like didn't you call me? Like, space cockroaches. Like, to make sure that you've got the drive yeah. to, like, get rid of them to survive. Whatever. Like, I'm sorry, modern day recruiters? Real... Is this you? I was going to say, it, it feels like a modern day, <laughs> a modern day MLM recruitment thing. Where it's like, you got to prove that you're hungry enough to join our org. It's like, all right. Oh my gosh. It's like, didn't you Facebook message me? <laughs> hey, boss lady. Hey, hon. I've got um, a great opportunity for revenge for you. Good Lord. So he gives Luther, once he proves himself worthy, a fraction, a fraction of the fraction of his own powers, giving him the ability to affect time. So he immediately goes to fuck with Superman, who's in this, like, race with the Flash. It's all very self-serving. They're doing it for charity, but it's really to show off. So they realize that the world is moving, but they are not, even though their feet should be moving, because Luther is distorting time around them. So next, the Penguin is approached. And he's about to fall out of the sky because his umbrella was a quote-unquote cheap American-made product. <laughs> Which really got me. That was pretty funny. I screenshotted that panel. I thought it was the funniest shit. I thought it was so funny. I read it to my coworker when I wasn't reading comics at work. But instead of falling to his death, he falls straight into a pocket dimension. Yes, I will always pronounce it that way. Where he too is talked into joining forces with the Emissaries of Doom. And once given powers, he immediately turns every major city in the world into a bad version of Hitchcock's The Birds. Mm -hmm. And so he basically has all of these birds come in and terrorize the frightened citizens and it like stopped all air traffic and like, you know. Meanwhile, Brainiac has also been thrown into a pocket dimension and is given powers to show the Amazons racial memories that would quote-unquote, devolve them and make them, quote-unquote, regress into savages. It's the dumbest shit. It's so dumb. Throw it entirely in the trash. Start over. <laughs> As Kelly from Goblin Bros called it, it's hot garbage. <laughs> hot garbage. It absolutely is. So then the Joker is pulled from his mandated therapy session in Arkham Asylum and is given the power to create his own pocket dimensions with his own rules. So he sends Batman, Robin, and Hawkman into basically an infinite plunge into nothingness. That was a nice touch. Yeah. I liked that. Yeah. He kept fucking with them. Like, he'd just be like, he's like, now you're falling through a hat. Now it looks like you're falling off of a tear. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was funny. And Hawkman's like, I can't like fly. I'm just like, I'm because like, you know, the Joker sets the rules for physics. So he's like, my yep. nth metal doesn't help me here. It was it was good. But also like the Joker was apparently making really good progress with his therapist. And he was like, ah, she's driving me sane. And like, I actually care. Like she she took a vacation in August and I missed her. <laughs> I was like, mm. yeah. And then I don't know, this man. motherfucker, this fucking emissary of doom comes in here and calls going to therapy humiliation and i'm like mm -hmm. you can no back the actual fuck up don't be like this go get yourself some fucking therapy <laughs> oh i'm talking to all of you by the way we all need therapy all of us yeah it, it's given off some real alpha male vibes <laughs> yeah yeah so what well, back to our story here because we're still rolling my friends 
So one by one, the heroes are overtaking the villains, and each time the emissaries are not happy about it, basically stating that they are not quality villains. And like, ouch to that, I guess. So the only one left is Brainiac, basically, because he hasn't done jack shit yet. And he's super ready to watch the downfall of the world at the hands of the Amazons. And that's like a whole fucking issue because the Amazons get Mm -hmm. zapped with like racial memory lasers or whatever. And they just start popping off. That basically just means that they all start like they they all become bloodthirsty. They just become more warlike. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It, It had it felt a little racist, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I mean, they, they call them fucking racial memories. What do you What do you want me to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> so Diana rolls in, gets hit with a shield by one of her own people, and it says "WAP." By the way, that's I I showed my coworker that too. I was like, "You want to see a really funny version of WAP?" <laughs> <laughs> she also starts to become affected by the racial blah 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 whatever, and also starts to go ballistic and like ends up kidnapping Fidel Castro among other things because she wants to send out nukes. Well, yeah. And it's one of the best things. I think the country is called like San Marcos. It's some stand in for Cuba, but you're like, that's Castro. Like, (laughs) okay. It's so obviously Castro. It's the eighties. Like, of course it's going to be Castro. Oh gosh. So that was interesting. So, They're defeated basically through a collective effort on the part of the now-escaped superheroes, with the Flash turning the sea around the Amazon ship into a hurricane and taking it into the air, and through knockout gas, quote-unquote, that Batman had on his utility belt. And Aquaman calls Leviathan out of the ocean, so just this giant lizard, like, Godzilla-type thing that basically is stand-in for Godzilla. You can tell they're just going to use the name pops out of the ocean and then i think marvel was doing a godzilla comic around that time too oh okay so like yeah okay so that makes sense they didn't want to you know muddy the waters i suppose you know with leviathan instead coming out of the ocean so the green lantern ends up catching and diffusing the nuclear bombs that wonder woman had made fidel quote-unquote help her launch and then superman is also regressed by Brainiac and turns into Superman the Barbarian? And that also felt weirdly racist? I don't know. (laughs) Well, they... It's just, it's a very... It's weird. It's very uncomfortable because it's like the equivalent of a Cro-Magnon kind of, you know, body where he's all like kind of hulked out, but he also has like the really prominent like you know forehead and everything it's just it's weird and it like you know it looks kind of ape-like yeah it it's not overtly racist but it it feels real uncomfortable like it's very strange yeah it it feels like it's edging in that direction so many other battles ensue i'm like i was able to cut some of this out for y'all don't worry but superman the barbarian is attacking the superheroes now but like they're able to make him devolve through Green Lantern's ring. Like, okay. Yeah, it's like blocking the radiation or something. Yeah, something. I don't know. So Green Lantern takes them all to Brainiac's ship and they battle it out with the other supervillains because they're all on Brainiac's ship. And then Brainiac lands them on Apocalypse where all of the superheroes and villains meet up with the emissaries of doom and you know, blah, 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 final battle, where it's revealed that the mastermind behind the emissaries is none other than Gasp, Darkseid. It all makes sense now. No, it doesn't. Fuck, it doesn't. No. Darkseid then takes the emissaries and fucks off, <laughs> leaving the superheroes on Apocalypse, wondering how they're going to fuck off home. Yeah, and then Metron shows up at the last second and like summons Brainiac's ship out of nowhere and so it's whatever it's oh dumb God. You know? I did enjoy the fact that at one point like when they landed on Apocalypse <laughs> the Joker was like what? <laughs> like, there's no one here to meet us? Not even coffee and donuts? That's great yeah 
And I mean, like this was at the point of time where the Joker was kind of like he was he was in that period where he was kind of like balancing between like kooky and weird and like bloodthirsty psychopath before we just tipped fully into that latter direction. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So. Kirby was only doing the covers until the final issue, but then he took over, you know, but before that, like, how did you feel about the interior art by Gonzalez? Like, it was fine. It felt a yeah. little chaotic at times. Yeah, I felt like it was it was trying to ape Kirby's style. Yeah, well, I could tell the difference, but I did feel like it wasn't too far of a leap when that last issue came about. Yeah. But it felt more polished, that last issue. And there was definitely a distinct difference. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was Jack Kirby, who was known as the king of comics. Like, he had a very distinct style that that many people emulated but could never duplicate really so i feel like i already know the answer to this but how did you feel about this first volume in general it was a fucking wild ride i know i've already said that but it's true and it again it makes a lot of sense that it wasn't a part of the true dc canon and like Mm -hmm. i said i was kind of scratching my head about that when reading some parts of this before i knew but it also just ramps up the entire time. There's no lull to give the reader a chance to even breathe. It just like keeps going at a sprint. Yes. Like I, this was in my notes was that I felt exhausted reading it. Yes. Like, it, and one of my notes was that everything about the story feels breathless. Yes. Yes. It's true. Like, I felt like I needed to take a nap after each issue. It was just like, (laughs) God, I did actually fall asleep after one of these because I was just like, oh, it's over. (laughs) Yeah. So I have to say, I keep saying this, but I, I have a hard time considering Lex Luthor a real villain for some of this. Like, Mm. it sounds like he's hurting because, you know, according to him, I'm only hearing his side of the story in this, but. He was chilling on a peaceful planet with his wife and kid and like all of the other people on the planet. And Superman rolled in and picked a fight and got the entire yeah. planet blown up. Is that I so I didn't I I, I wasn't know. there for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know all the details. I know that he had a planet called Lexor and that he was like the yes. ruler of it and he had a wife and a kid and then there was a battle between him and Superman that resulted in the planet getting destroyed. That's it. Yes. I, that's it. I have not read that issue yet. I need to track it down. But yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know. This sort of feeds into the whole trope of Superman's a dick. <laughs> yeah. It's like Superman came and knocked on your door, poked you in the eye, and then burned your house down. It's like, what are you doing yeah. here even? Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. So, yeah, I would be pissed too, by the way. Yeah. But, like, beyond that, he's, like, legitimately, genuinely remorseful that an entire planet of people was destroyed in the melee between himself and Superman. So, like, how evil Mm. is he actually when we get down to it? Because last I saw Superman, he was in some, like, let's measure our dicks, like, race with the Flash. Where he's telling the Flash that he might even let him win. It's like, you're an ass. I know. I was like, (laughs) shut the fuck up. I just wanted to smack him. Always. Yeah, hashtag not my Superman. (laughs) Not my. (laughs) I I like Superman today. He gives off strong Labrador energy and I like him. (laughs) So I also do like the idea that a like a force would be like, whoa, it makes way more sense for us to team up and take over the world with the supervillains that already exist, et cetera, Mm -hmm. because we have similar goals, blah, blah, blah. And I also like the idea that the group is judging the villains for sucking at villainy. That was so funny. (laughs) Another thing that was funny were the insults that Penguin was launching at the heroes. I legit started cackling when he called the Green Lantern Green Bean. Yeah, that was good. The disrespect was palpable. I loved it. Yeah, I like petty supervillains. Oh, they're so good. They're so good. Things I didn't particularly care for are the Joker's therapist has like a legit role in the comics, but she doesn't get a name. Mm -hmm. 
because again, fuck women. Also, the Joker is being made fun of for going to therapy. I'm going to say it again. Go to fucking therapy. (laughs) And of course, the last real issue I had was the fact that the Amazons were going to be shown, quote unquote, racial memories that would cause them to go fucking, quote unquote, savage. Like, what? No. Yeah. So, I mean, like, overall, I didn't hate it. Just some parts of it. Yeah. I mean, it's better than some of the series we've read. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Naps around for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, that's kind of where I am. I'm like, there are parts that I enjoyed. But, like, again, it was just, like, breathless, confusing nonsense wrapped in this, like, epic presentation that can't really hide the fact that it's just narrative gobbledygook like you know it's not bad like i'm not gonna throw it on the bad pile but it isn't something that i ever want to go back and reread because that is time i'm not gonna get back in my life and i don't need to revisit it it's so true all right now this brings us to the second volume of superpowers and this was a six issue series and this time it was written by paul kupperberg it was penciled by jack kirby inked by greg teakston Colored by Joe Orlando, lettered by Greg Teakston, and edited by Andrew Helfer. And once again, we find ourselves on Apocalypse with Darkseid and his lackeys, but this time they are smarting after a group known as the Hunger Dogs rebel against the villains. So Darkseid activates his last boom tube and escapes to Earth's moon, where he has a secret base, and he plans to basically conquer it in turn. The planet into a new version of Apocalypse by planting what are called doom seeds. Swear to God. So basically, they're like alien pods with like plant roots that are burrowing towards the Earth's core. And when they get to the core, we'll release like fire and toxic fumes into the atmosphere, and that'll make humanity docile and liable to Darkseid's will. It is revealed that the seeds feed off the energy of superheroes who come into contact with it and basically you know like it uses this energy to continue to grow so martian manhunter and aquaman are the first to reach one they are investigating a seed that's at stonehenge where darkseid's lackey desad lures them into contact with the seed and it transports them back to king arthur's time and they have a brief skirmish with the knights of the round table before escaping back to 1985 And meanwhile, Hawkman, Green Arrow, and Red Tornado investigate a seed in like the New York subway at Times Square, and it opens a portal back to prehistoric times, and they confront Darkseid's son, Calabac. Those heroes get sucked through while Martian Manhunter and Aquaman fight a bunch of dinosaurs that have come through to 1985. Mm. Meanwhile, Green Lantern, Dr. Fate, and Wonder Woman go to check out Easter Island, where the villain Mantis is hanging out. That seed transports the heroes almost a thousand years into the island's past where they find aliens who inspired the famous sculptures and everybody fights. The heroes eventually defeat the villains and then they return to 1985 as well. And they see that the head statues have been replaced with like giant busts of their own heads. Next up is Superman and Firestorm. They go to Rome, Italy, where a Roman gladiator has been brought to their time. And while they are distracted dealing with him, they are ambushed by the villain Steppenwolf who is very different than the character we got in the Justice League movie. And he then uses the pod to transport back to 68 AD. And then Superman just flies at the speed of light and travels through time with Firestorm and the Gladiator and gets back to the same era. And they're captured and then thrown into gladiatorial games and forced to battle for Emperor Nero's pleasure. And of course, they overcome the challenge and make it back home. And then finally, Batman, Robin, and the Flash go to the Arizona desert where a seed is just randomly there, and it sends them thousands of years into the future to a Las Vegas where Darkseid conquered the Earth. And again, unsurprisingly, they make it back home, and then there's a final battle where Darkseid's minions battle the heroes. Darkseid is like on the verge of winning. He's like, you know, the seeds have reached the core. They just need a final pulse of power to, to you know trigger this apocalypse that I have planned. And he fires off a blast of energy from this kind of like gun turret seat that he has. Superman intercepts the blast and 
you, you know, he deals with it like a champ. He's like, well, I don't know if my body can take it, but whatever. Of course it does. And so the Earth is spared. And then Darkseid's energy weapon was sabotaged by Desad and it explodes. And like the art and dialogue make it sound like Darkseid has died. Like he's literally melting on the panel and he's cursing Desad's name. And he's like, you'll pay for this. And Desad is sitting there going, you have to be alive to make me pay. <laughs> And that's basically where it ends. It's like, that's it. <laughs> it's really weird. It's a strange time capsule because overall, this second series, using Kirby's artwork and the narrative devices that it does, it feels like a weird sci-fi comic that Kirby would have done in like the late 60s, early 70s. And it, it's very over the top and silly, but it's weird because it doesn't actually feel like a real marketing product. It just, it feels like a comic that we would have seen from an earlier era. On this note, we get to the third series and volume three of the superpowers comics is a four issue series. Kirby didn't come back for this one. It was written by Paul Kupperberg. It was penciled by legendary artist, Carmine Infantino inks by Pablo Marcos colored by Joe Orlando, lettered by Albert de Guzman, and edited by Barry Marks. And Volume 3 basically picks up directly after Volume 2, where Darkseid is somehow alive. How? We don't know. Not explained. But he is not on Apocalypse anymore. Instead, he is in this place called the Tower of Darkness, which is like a cosmic jail designed by his adopted son, Mr. Miracle. It's very confusing because this thing is very much an evil lair, like to the point where the outside of it shows Darkseid's face making up a huge part of like the facade of the building. And there's like his hands out front and everything, too. Um, That's covert. Yeah. And like in the first panel is him like torturing the sad for for betraying him. So like clearly Darkseid survived the assassination attempt, but we don't know how it's never really explained. Basically, Mr. Miracle and his adopted brother, Orion, end up like going through all of these booby traps and things that Miracle had set up and confronting Darkseid. And then they're like, all right, we're going to fuck off back to Apocalypse, where it turns out they rule the place. And like, even though they're ruling Apocalypse, they're not super popular. There's like a bunch of ongoing riots and rebellions because for some reason people miss Darkseid. I, okay, whatever. Anyway, some of Darkseid's lieutenants are discovered to be plotting to rescue their old boss. And uh, Orion discovers this plot and he's like, we need to make some more super beings to foil this or something. I don't know. But anyway, he places a call to Earth where there's some super scientist who's there who's also from apocalypse it's not really explained why he's there but his name is Cronar. and first of all Cronar's lab is located in the mountains outside of metropolis which i okay <laughs> like mm, jesus christ like metropolis is is not known for its mountainous terrain but all right whatever <laughs> Cronar is working on something called project superhero during the call, Orion is like, we need superheroes and, and people that can help us fight Darkseid's minions. Kronar's like, we're not ready. And Orion goes, too bad, my guy. And then Kronar basically goes, fine, whatever. And he flips a switch that triggers something called Omega Energy. It's basically kind of like a, you know, like a, a blast of energy that goes out across the planet. But instead of like being in a wave, it's a bolt. It hits a couple of different people. So we get a new hero called Samurai, who is from the old Super Friends cartoons. We get Golden Pharaoh, who is a character that was created specifically for the Kenner toy line. We also see the energy boosted the powers of Mr. Freeze. And also we have Cyclotron, who is a robot, I think that was built by Superman show up. The first issue is just designed to introduce these characters. There is not a lot of backstory or character development. It literally shows these energy beams approaching them. And, and then the next thing we know, they are empowered. Also, 
very weird that Golden Pharaoh was a white archaeologist at the pyramids, and then he shows up later on, and he's, I'm not sure if it's like armor that he has on him, but he's got very, you know, ancient Egyptian style features, so it feels a little unintentionally Mm. racist. (laughs) Or appropriative. Yeah, or appropriative, one or the other. Like, neither is good. There's the usual cross-communication that results in these heroes battling with the Justice League, and then eventually they all get along. They hang out at the Hall of Justice together, which was also a playset for the action figures, and then we see them getting a tour of the Hall of Justice, and you can see like the various superhero vehicles that they made toys for in the background. So this is already much more of a marketing device than previous series had been. Darkseid in turn is eventually freed from the tower of doom, but is also like depowered because the people that are rescuing him hold him for ransom. And they want to basically get a bigger payday than they were originally promised by the minions. When even though dark is depowered, he manages to escape these traitors and he makes his way to earth. And in one of like the greatest sequence ever, there is a scene where he's breaking into a department store with a crowbar because even though he's this giant muscly dude with stone-like skin, apparently he's not strong enough to just break into the store on his own. And so he steals these clothes for a disguise. Wow. He then gets mugged by some street toughs. <laughs> but he manages to track down <laughs> Kronar on Earth and he gets him to repower him. And then it's implied murders him. It's all handled off panel. It's very strange. I didn't quite understand how he murdered him, but whatever. And then in turn, Darkseid empowers a bunch of other villains who can defeat the Justice League. And then he shows up to rescue the Justice League disguised as a superhero called Janus. And he's actually got a really kick-ass character design. And then he convinces the heroes to take him back to Apocalypse as part of a rescue mission to help out Mr. Miracle and Orion. The final issue is basically a big action sequence on Apocalypse where the superheroes are fighting the rebels and also the various villains that we've seen pop up throughout this series. The good guys, of course, win in the end, but Darkseid is still disguised as Janus, so he offers to help Orion with his efforts on Apocalypse while he plots to retake his throne. And that's where the series ends. Almost everything is tied up in a neat bow, but there's still that lurking threat, you know, that's left dangling. Yeah, leave that door open for the next one. I hear you. <laughs> yeah. And sounds like a cutscene at the end of a Marvel movie. I know, right? And that's the thing is they clearly were expecting that this might continue on, but it didn't. So they did it in a way that felt pretty appropriate, where it's like, well, there's this one threat, but otherwise everything's okay. You know, and I gotta say, like, I actually enjoyed the series the most out of the three. It's not objectively great but it's a pretty tight little story that feels the most coherent out of the three. And likewise, the art's pretty good. It's got a lot more cinematic, like, you know, the poses and the angles than the previous series did, but it's also pretty shallow with no real character development. It's just all these characters showing up out of nowhere and either delivering a bunch of exposition or getting into fights without actually letting us know who they are, what drives them. But, you know, this was also designed for kids. So, you know, children's entertainment was not especially deep You know deep how then. much we love exposition. Yeah. Oh, God. And that's the thing yeah. is all of these series, you read through them and it's <laughs> walls of text across the pages. That was something that was still really common. And it was a lot of telling, not showing, which is my favorite way to deliver a narrative. But whatever. <laughs> yeah. In a comics medium. Absolutely. Yeah. And then after this point in 1986, the superpowers toy line ceased to exist. And I mean, that's not all that surprising. Like we talked about this in our episode about Saturday morning cartoons all the way back in issue one with a lot of the cartoons and their associated toy lines that were flooding the market back in the 80s. We only had a few hits. So like these days, you know, our generation remembers stuff like Thundercats or G.I. Joe or Transformers or He-Man. But those were like the really rare success stories like superpowers by that comparison wasn't a grand slam success like these. But, you know, sticking around for three years, that wasn't too bad. 
And that said, all of this is based on a bunch of opinion pieces I've read rather than being able to track down actual sales numbers or case studies. But it sounds like the third series didn't sell as well as it needed to. And one of the major reasons was apparently they were moving away from producing figures that comic fans wanted and something that keeps on coming up in these articles, which again are written from a perspective of almost 40 years later. So, you know, again, grain of salt is the overall lack of female characters outside of Wonder Woman. Supposedly, people wanted characters like Supergirl and Batwoman and Catwoman. And instead, Kenner had started making up characters that hadn't appeared in comics before now. So the third wave of figures included original heroes like Golden Pharaoh and Cyclotron. And, you know, I'm not sure what the rationale was for this. I wouldn't be surprised if there was an executive boys club at Kenner or DC or Warner Brothers or maybe all three. That said, back in 2003, the toy history site Toy Otter revealed concept art and prototype figure photos for a planned fourth wave of figures. And there were some more original characters, but it turns out Kenner actually was planning to do a Supergirl figure for the toy line. We just Mm. never got them in the stores. And likewise, Hanna-Barbera's tie-in cartoons were the final shows they did for DC brands. And I think this marked the end of DC's presence in animation until a few years later when Batman animated series came along. That said, DC's presence in the action figure field never really stopped after this point. The DC Superpowers line has continued to have ripple effects. Toy Biz put out a line of action figures in the late 80s, and the photos that look like they basically copied a lot of the character molds or mostly copied them and made it just different enough that they wouldn't get sued, you know? Right. But they even have the snap-on cape feature from the Kenner models where they had these little like plastic hooks at the top of these fabric capes. Kenner was still producing figures for Batman, and I seem to recall hearing that they reused the Penguin model from the Superpowers line for the Batman Returns toys. Apparently, the character design for Danny DeVito's Penguin was like so gross that Kenner was sitting there and like, we can't sell that to kids. So they reused the classic design. 100% though. With the tux and the top hat, but they changed the colors of it. Likewise, they produced figures for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the movie. Hmm. apparently reused a bunch of parts from like the superpowers characters as well as robocop toys and star wars to kind of like piece together these figures and i saw a photo where it was showing the pig guards from like jabba's palace like and how you can see parts of their body used Hmm. for i think friar tuck which is just also rude but you know whatever my god yeah it's pretty funny and then Kenner was eventually acquired by Tonka. Tonka, in turn, was acquired by Hasbro a few years later. And the license has kind of bounced around. Mattel, for a while, was putting out the DC Universe classics. And apparently, those showed a lot of the original figure's influence in terms of style. And later on, they produced a Superpowers 30th Anniversary collection. Also gone on to be pretty highly collectible in their own right. And then... In the last, you know, 15 years or so, a number of companies have put out superpowers inspired products, including like cake toppers and statues. There have also been other products released with art and character cards from the superpowers toy line included in the packaging. And this year we had McFarlane toys start putting out five inch versions of the superpower action figures, including one for the Batman who laughs, who is like one of my least favorite characters, but I'm not going to lie. The figure is pretty cool looking. And these comics are a little more expensive to track down in general, but they are pretty easy to access digitally. Like case in point, the first two series are collected in a couple of trades. We read them on Hoopla via the 2018 Jack Kirby superpowers trade. So thank you, Hoopla, as always. Thank you, libraries. Yeah, right. Everyone support your local library if you can. Mm hmm. Yeah, but as far as I can tell, the third volume isn't collected anywhere. It's not hard to find, though, the single issues of, like I said, I found all this stuff at an antique store and didn't have to pay a lot of money for them. So that was kind of cool. But, you know, maybe someday they'll release all of these books together in one volume. Who knows? An interesting point I found was in a Nerdist article titled, The Superpowers Era Was DC Comics at Its Most Iconic by Eric Diaz. And it notes that superpowers, toys, and comics were what established Darkseid as the final boss of the DC universe. Before that, he had like fought the Justice League and its respective heroes a couple of times. 
But this was the point where it was basically the unifying threat towards everybody. And I mean, that's still the case these days. He was basically the major villain in Superman, the animated series and Justice League Unlimited. He was the man behind Steppenwolf's curtain in Zack Snyder's Justice League. And he's also been the world ending threat in tons of major comic storylines and animated movies over the past few years. So with all that said, how do you feel about the superpowers comics in general? What a fucking whirlwind. Yeah. This was a much deeper rabbit hole. Like so much happened. Like the second one where I was like, they were like, suddenly there were dinosaurs and suddenly there were like, they were in fucking like Rome and suddenly like, I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. It was a hopping. Mm -hmm. It was a hopping. So I don't know. Do you want to exercise while you're reading comics? You should read this then. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think the big question that I have whenever I make you read all this stuff is, you know, overall, did you enjoy it? Did you hate it? Somewhere in between. I do have to say there were so many times where I was cackling. Yeah. Because it was either ridiculous or it actually was a pretty funny line. Mm hmm. So, I mean, there, you know, there were some zingers in there for sure. Yeah. But it, you know, I would say that like, I'm tired. Like, like, I'm not mad I read it, you know, it like, I definitely got some laughs. Yeah. But, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, I'm kind of right there with you. They generally feel like throwbacks to an earlier time, especially the first two volumes. They're very epic and very grandiose. And the speech feels very Shakespearean, especially from the villains. But like, also, they're very silly and utter nonsense if you stop and try to like think about the storylines for even a second. Like, you don't even have to like look hard. If you just kind of like just look at it for a second, it doesn't hold up. It just falls apart narratively. And it definitely doesn't hold up if you try to rewrite the plot down Mm -mm. to explain it to all of you. (laughs) This was one of those things where I had to sit there and read a couple of pages and then summarize it. And then type down my summary because it just it would not it would not stick in my head. It was just it was too out there. So it took me, I read it twice. It took me a lot longer to write down the summaries for these than normal. Yes. And that said, as I stated earlier, the second series honestly feels like a classic Jack Kirby comic. And it's also really cool to see Jack Kirby's art with all of these iconic characters. Like nobody drew like him. Nobody really draws like him now. Like I I don't know, maybe the closest person to him is Eric Larson these days with the Savage Dragon, and he's got a new series called The Ant that feels very Kirby-esque in its art. Overall, walking away from this, I like you feel tired. I don't feel angry and I don't feel sad. So I'm gonna take it as a win. There are so many times we feel both of those things when we finish this conversation. Yeah. yeah. What do you say we move on to brain wrinkles? Let's wrinkle into it. All right. We are now at brain wrinkles, which is the portion of the show where we talk about one thing that is comics or a comics adjacent that has just been sitting in our head for the last couple of days. So this is actually our 50th full-length episode. (laughs) Yeah. And that has just been sticking in my head lately, like all the way through recording this, because every time I opened up the script, it had episode 50 in the header. You know, it was kind of that constant reminder. cool number. Yeah. Like, I know it's just a number, but it's like, it's half of a hundred, dude. Yeah. That's, That's cool. Yeah. And, you know, and on top of that, this is the last episode we are recording in 2022. I don't have anything particularly deep associated with this, but it's just I've been thinking about how we didn't really know what we were doing when we started the show. And, you know, we're still here and still, I think, going strong. In fact, the show hit 6,000 downloads on Christmas Eve, which was absolutely wild to see. Which, Merry Christmas to I us. I know. Talk about a Christmas Thank miracle. You we appreciate you. What a great gift. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was a number that I, I had no idea when we were going to hit it. I was like, oh, it'd be, it'd be nice to hit 5,000 at some point. And we hit that earlier this year. And I was like, all right, the sky's the limit. Not that long ago, it feels yeah, like. Yeah. We've got a mascot now. We have a new website coming that I'm almost done working on. We have already got some great guests lined up for 2023. I mean, we've made amazing oh, friends so with like listeners and other podcasts. Case in point, we had a secret Santa mm-hmm. on 
Christmas Eve Eve, the 23rd, with several other shows. And it was so much fun. I was, was so excited about that. It was such a good that. time. Yeah. We were all laughing the entire time. Yeah. And I mean, everybody, you know, took time to like think about their gifties and provided, you know, really thoughtful presents and they weren't big or anything, but it was just, it was so nice. And it felt like we were dealing with people that we had known forever, which was just wonderful. And man, like, thanks to everyone for sticking with us. And, you know, Jessica, thank you for starting the show with me. It's been a, it's been a blast so far, but it's been like so good for my mental health during the prolonged mental stress of living through a pandemic. Yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah, no, thank you. This has been amazing. And I, you know, I was new to comics mm -hmm. when you and I first started this, and it was an interest that I really picked up because of this. And because I was more the kind of movie side of things, I was still nerding out. Don't have anybody get me wrong. <laughs> but like, you know, I, it was more kind of the movie side of things. And it has been such a fun journey yeah. to discover new things. And I'm constantly telling Mike, I'm like, I feel so stupid about comics. And you just you're so supportive. And you're always like, no, you just haven't been reading them that long. Like, give yourself the time to, like, read through some shit. Like, you didn't learn how to read from comic books 35 years ago. Like, that's all it is. I didn't. I didn't. I know. So, yeah. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate all of you and the things that you've contributed to the show and, you know, suggestions. We've had some suggestions from people before that have brought us to some really cool topics. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm super excited for just everything for the next part of our journey. Yeah. On that note, thank you for sticking with us, everybody. We'll be back with another Dollar Bin Discoveries episode. And then after that, who knows? We'll have something else that we're going to be talking about in depth. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, take care of yourselves. We'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to 10 Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Mike Thompson and Jessica Frazier, written by Mike Thompson and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound, our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to 10centtakes.com or shoot an email to 10centtakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter for the moment. <laughs> the official podcast account is 10 Cent Takes. Jessica is Jessica Witha and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. We are also on Hive and Mastodon. Those links are, as always, included in the show notes. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.